The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Over the last weeks, we've been exploring the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, so continuing that, that topic. And since it's a smaller group, I may keep my reflections a little shorter and then maybe just have a little more time for conversation. Um, so we're in the section, we're in the ethics section of the Eightfold Path. We've been kind of going through the Eightfold Path uh, in depth. And um, I'll just speak about uh, a little bit about ethics first because even though we've we've covered this earlier in the in the series it feels important to me to revisit the whole framing of ethics in uh in buddhist practice because often i think even just the way that the way that our culture emphasizes ethics and the way that often our um our religious backgrounds emphasize ethics is is uh, a little different, perhaps, or um, and we often, I feel, have a conflicted relationship with ethics, feeling like it's restraining or constraining us, um, and it feels like a should rather than something that is coming out of us. It feels like it's being laid on us from on top, almost like a law or a rule. And um, you know, the way ethics is explored in Buddhist practice is much more as um, actions and movements of heart and mind that are in alignment with our um, natural, more natural sense of ourselves as human beings that want to be happy, that want to engage in the world uh, with uh, harmony. And so really the the um, the ethics is around creating harmony in our communities and creating harmony internally. The flip side of that, and I don't know if I, there, I don't know if there's a flip side of this in the word harmony, but uh, the flip side of it is refraining from harm. Um, and so the the um, the the ethics in the Buddhist path, the, the ethics in the Buddhist teaching, is really about looking at it's 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 all, it's defined around um, what is it that leads to more harmony, more peace, more ease, both internally and externally, and those things are understood to be skillful or wholesome. And the ethics in Buddhism is is really around this question of what leads towards a deeper kind of happiness, what leads towards this harmony, well-being. That is the direction of ethics. And what leads away from it, qualities of mind, of greed, aversion, delusion, confusion, anger, hatred, um, uh, greed, avarice, um, qualities, reactive qualities of mind will tend to lead o- us away from harmony. And so the, while the ethics section of the path is focused on actions, um, wise why speech? The actions around speech. What are what are actions of speech that are connected with creation of harmony? Uh, wise action. What are actions of body that are create that are associated or conducive to harmony? And livelihood. What are actions of how we engage in in living in not only in our um, occupations but in in living our lives? How is it in, engaged in living that will lead towards more harmony? and away from suffering. And so the focus in the in the this middle section of the eightfold path in terms of the the language of it it's very much about refraining from actions. Um and actually that's in some ways that's a freeing way to express express um ethics and perhaps why many religious um uh, organization, religious institutions use that form. I mean, the Ten Commandments are largely expressed in terms of refraining from "Thou shalt not," the no, "not kill," "not steal," "not lie," and many of these same uh, pieces are found in this in this section of the Eightfold Path. 
undertaking the training to refrain from taking life, undertaking the training to refrain from um, taking what's not offered, undertaking the training to refrain from creating harm through sexuality. So while uh, while the the emphasis in these uh, ethical components of the Eightfold Path is about restraint from particular actions, it's it's um, it's in some ways it's easier to think about what we have to avoid than to try to construct what we what what we might think we need to construct to um, to create harmony if if harmony were mandated by you have to do this you have to do that and sometimes the um, people you know in our culture it seems that we we like an expression of um well, I undertake the training to live in compa- live a compassionate life or something like that. Uh, and, and that sounds really inspiring perhaps and, um, and very motivating at times. And yet to, uh, to, to say that that is the, the rule or that is how we have to engage, we end up almost putting ourselves in a double bind because uh, as Bhikkhu Bodhi points out, you know, our minds are not just not so amenable to just say, I'm going to have compassion right now. I'm going to have generosity right now. You know, and yet we do. There is more capacity in our minds and in our hearts to recognize, oh, this action, not helpful. Maybe I should not do that. There's, there's more capacity we have to refrain from an action than there is to consciously put a state into our mind. And so um, the pointing in the uh, these all of these three path factors, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, is that there are specific actions that if we're engaged in those actions, the probability that there is some mental state that is not conducive to harmony is in our minds is very high. In fact, there's some that, and there's some ways in which the, the, the framing of these um, path factors is kind of like the Buddha pointing to us like, yeah, if you're getting ready to do that, you really need to check out your mind because there's some greed, aversion, or delusion in there. So it, it's, it's helping us in a way, these, these, this, these path factors are helping us to identify um, things that we might be doing that are reflective of something in our minds that we might not be so aware of. And so it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a almost a mindfulness bell that if we're getting ready to engage in these actions, check it out, look look inside the mind, and because this path ultimately the 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 whole arc of the path is really to cultivate those qualities of mind that lead in the direction of freedom, to release those qualities of mind that lead away from freedom. And so this section of the Eightfold Path is, is kind of more in that side of things, the releasing qualities of mind that lead away from freedom, that we recognize or understand these actions most likely have some of these states of mind that underlie them, that are motivating them. And so refraining from those actions gives us an opportunity to investigate and explore, well, what's going on there? It's important in our in our practice, not to just use these um, guidelines around refraining from certain actions simply as a repression, to just simply kind of blindly follow them and say, well, I'm not supposed to do that, so I don't do that. And, and the kind of feeling or sense of repressing the urge that's connected with that, that's not helpful in this, in this understanding of the way this path works. Um, unless that... Um, urge is so powerful that, um, you know, there are times when an urge is so powerful that we really do have to have a powerful, just don't go there, like a real strong no around it. But much of the time we can actually, you know, refrain from an action. This is kind of the fine line of the, the middle path in a way, that we can refrain from an action that we understand will create harm, either for ourselves or others. And yet, not repress the the kind of the movement of heart and mind, the, the the anger or the frustration or the the hostility or the greed that's kind of back there, and instead seeing if we can bring our mindfulness to that. It's like, oh, there's this kind of wish to pick up a shoe and whack that spider on the wall. 
can I can I recognize the kind of the the fear or the 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 um, the revulsion that has arisen there, and what's what's going on there? You know, that to to hold that and then potentially have a different relationship with the spider, capturing it perhaps and putting it outside rather than killing it, and so we um, using these guidelines we. Uh, we begin to um, uh, we can begin to have a different choice based on those mind states and begin to recognize that the, the those relationships like the relationship of aversion to the spider that that is um, um, doesn 't have to be the relationship. It's a very, it's a deeply conditioned relationship, perhaps, but it is something that we've learned, and not something that's actually necessary. And it, it and you know, having a, a relationship of compassion and appreciation for spiders doesn't mean that we wouldn't pick it up and put it outside. It's like you know, you don't belong here. You belong in nature. <laughs> you don't belong in my house. So, um, and the. The, uh, the guidelines here are really pointers in a way to helping us to recognize and be curious about those qualities that underlie those actions. Not just simply that the injunction is avoid the action full stop, but notice when those actions are coming or are, are, are maybe uh, inclined towards and can you notice what's happening? You know what what are the what are the underlying motivations? Fear, anxiety, confusion, dread, greed, um, whatever it is, and be with that. And then there's the possibility of a different choice, a different action coming out when we have the mindfulness of those qualities and of those states. And so, really, the ethics section is a support for us to begin to recognize what's going on in our mind to support what's happening internally. And so the whole, the whole of these ethics are really based in this notion of non-harming. And um, I probably brought in the Buddha's teaching to his son, his seven-year-old son, a few weeks ago. But I'll just mention it again now because it's a, it's a kind of a different way in towards, towards ethics in a way. You know, the, the ethics of the Eightfold Path being framed in refraining from action. You know, refraining from taking life, refraining from um, taking what's not given. When the Buddha taught ethics to his son, I'm sure he taught him the precepts as well, but there was a particular teaching that was, um, that the Buddha offered that is recorded in the suttas. And it, it, the, the sutta begins because apparently his son had lied that day. Um, and so he was sent to his father, <laughs> his seven-year-old son was sent to his father, and his father gives him, you know, a kind of, a little admonishment, and, and, but it's done in a way that says, that's pointing to what you are losing by doing this. He said, he said, you see this, this, um, this dipper of water, and he did this in a number of ways, he said, you see this dipper of water, and his son Rahula said yes, and he threw the water away. And he said, when you engage in lying intentionally, it's like you're throwing, every, throwing good things away. And so he, he was pointing to the downsides of, of that. So he was, it wasn't just saying, bad son, you know, you shouldn't do that. He was help, trying to help him understand what he's losing by engaging in that action. And then he, um, he, he brought in a, a more in-depth teaching around ethics where he encouraged his son, and, and it's interesting to me, this is a teaching that is, you know, it's, a seven-year-old can understand it. His son was seven years old at the time that he gave this teaching to him. Uh, but it's a very high bar, you know, when we look at this. He said, before you do anything, think about, is this going to, create affliction? Is it going to harm? Is it going to create distress for yourself, for another person, or for both? And so really looking at this, this aspect of harm. So before you do something, check out, is it, is it going to create harm in some way? So the, you know, to, and so this is also where it becomes very relational. 
You know, he's encouraging him to check out the person you're speaking to, what you're going to say, is this going to create harm? The person that you're engaged with, what you're doing, is this going to create harm? And so the, the reflection that he encouraged his son to make, this, this uh, you know, think about. So this is um, using our thoughts. It's using our capacity to think about things. Is it, is it going to create harm? It's also using our natural empathetic sense in this reflection. Because, and this is actually, I feel like, where the, the ethics of Buddhism um, and, and many of the ethics of, of other religions, you know, it does come into alignment um, with our, um, our natural sense of empathy. That when we think about another being and understand them as a being, um, recognize that, that, that there's life there, you know, that when we imagine or think about doing something that will create harm to them, we feel it. We know it internally. So that if we are aware of that process, then when we think about causing harm to somebody and we're aware of this empathetic resonance, we feel a suffering ourselves internally when we think about that. And so that's, that's the natural way our system works, that there's kind of an empathetic, when we, are, when we are present, when we are aware, understanding a relationship as a connection to another living being, there is an empathetic resonance that we can feel happiness when they're happy, we can feel suffering when they're suffering. And this is kind of the ground of the Brahma-viharas, of those wholesome, beautiful qualities of mind, of, of um, compassion, of, uh, of sympathetic joy that that's those, those qualities are reflective of this empathetic possibility that we have. And I think a lot of our capacity to harm others happens when that's shut down, that when we, when we are, are, are cutting ourselves off from that empathetic resonance. So the, um, um, this teaching to, the, to his son is, is pointing to this natural empathetic resonance that we have as human beings. There are, are some human beings, I understand, that their, their uh, brains are, don't function in this way. It's, it's a small number, I understand, but there are some human beings that don't have this empathetic resonance. And it's not possible for them to develop it either. So there are some human beings, I think, that in some ways it, it takes this empathetic resonance for us to cultivate this path. So there, there are some people for whom this path may not be accessible, but I think it's a pretty small number. You know, I had the privilege of going into San Quentin and listening to a group of men who are engaged in this practice, engaged in exploring their... Um, uh, their minds and their hearts. Um, and one of the things that they're asked to do is to review their their crime. And in this particular one that I witnessed, the, one of the emphases was on when was it that you felt like that other person was an object rather than another person? And, um, you know, that... that so that you know that shutting down of that empathetic sense, and um, you know the the we might think that all people who commit crimes don't have access to that, but that from from my witnessing of this group in San Quentin, that is not the case. That there was a deep seeing and a feeling of remorse that was coming with the the recognition of that separation treating a person like an object. There was a feeling that came with that. And so this is really where the, you know, the, the possibility of the path unfolds is through this um, empathetic resonance. We feel it when we are going to um, create harm in the world. And so this is a piece of that, you know, it's like if we're going to create harm in the world and we're aware, we are already creating harm for ourselves. It's, it's a painful thing to, uh, to feel that we may create harm in the world.
So this teaching to his son, he encouraged him to reflect before acting. Is this going to create harm for yourself or others or both? While you're acting. And he said, well, if you see or if you, if you recognize that or don't see that it's going to create harm, then go ahead and continue. But while you're, while you're doing it, keep checking. Is it creating harm? And so this brings in the possibility of our, um, you know, seeing or, or recognizing that certain times when we think in advance about something we might say or do, we might not recognize that it will cause harm. And so keep checking. You know, keep watching. Is it causing harm while you're acting? And then after you've acted, check it out. Did it cause harm? And so it's a pretty, it's a pretty um, high bar in some ways, you know, to, to reflect for every action. Is it going to cause harm? But, um, so, but, but this is, the, this is a kind of a different way in to ethics than just simply saying to his son, here are the rules, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He wanted him to reflect on the suffering that would be caused by certain actions and to feel how that would affect him. And so the, that's really where we go with ethics in, in this practice is to use our mindfulness. How does it feel? to think about doing a certain action. And these particular uh, ones that are, we're encouraged to avoid, um, it's almost like the Buddha is just saying right off the bat, he's like, yeah, these things, there's going to be harm caused. And so don't do it. And, and then, but, but don't discontinue the reflection. I think the reflection piece of how does it feel? What is the affliction? How does that land on me knowing that that, that action would cause harm? That helps the mind, partly because of the way our, our minds work, the, the kind of, um, when we feel uh, suffering in our own system, when we feel how, how a particular quality of greed or aversion or delusion creates a constriction in our heart and mind, being mindful of that, we understand that as internally suffering, and so the, the system begins to, uh, because our system wants to move towards well-being, our system begins to recognize, yeah, that, that is not conducive to that well-being. And so there's an evolution and a transformation of those qualities through the mindfulness of it. So I really think of these ethics as almost like uh, high-level mindfulness bells. Hey, you know, pay attention. This is about ready to happen, so watch out. So we've talked quite a bit about in wise action. We talked about wise speech and in wise action about refraining from killing. And so today I wanted to just, you know, go into um, kind of some of the details around refraining from taking that's what, that which is not given. And maybe also refraining from sexual misconduct, but we'll see if we get there because I do want to leave time for, for comments and questions. But again, both of these are around non-harming. So... Um, in refraining from taking that which is not given, the, the teachings point to that we need to understand so that the, um, um, the definition, let's say the definition of this, uh, if we were to take what is not given, is that we have to understand, we have to have the intention of taking something that doesn't belong to us. We have to have the intention of, in some ways, depriving the owner of their property um, and and um, so so we have to we have to uh, understand that there is something uh, that belongs to another in this and that we deprive that other being or entity of its of its property so that's what taking what is not offered means it doesn't mean that if you're walking in the woods. I mean, there's certain places I know, like I go to the to, say, to Fitzgerald Marine Preserve, and they have a big sign that says, please don't take anything from the preserve. So, you know, that, that would be, if you took something from the preserve, that would be taking what is not given. Uh, but there are many places where, um, you know, you're walking out in nature, and there's a tree that has fruit on it. You take that tree. It's not actively given to you. But there's also not the, the sense that this tree belongs to somebody, this fruit belongs to somebody. So that's not taking what is not given. 
So just to be clear that the the um, the definition around taking what's not given involves depriving someone of their property. So it's it's stealing. It's um, um, and, and there's subtlety. There's subtleties in this. Um, um, different kind of flavors of this. There, there, there can be, and different motivations. So there can be a motivation of greed, that we take something because we want it, because we like it, or we feel like we should have that. Or, um, and then there's also taking something out of, a, out of aversion, or not so much because we want it, but because we want to deprive somebody else of their having it. And so there's there's different motivations, and um, uh, it, it actually, in when I read the, about this, just reviewed the readings about it, um, the the notes said that if you are depriving somebody of their property and there's anger involved, it's a deeper kind of rebound on the mind. And this is another piece of of the of the teaching around ethics that when we do something, when we you know, we take something that's not given. Um, if even if we're not aware of it, the qualities that underlie it or motivate it kind of have an effect on us. They have a, a kind of a lingering effect on us. So the that if we're doing that out of anger, there's there's a rebound on our minds. That that we're essentially cultivating or reinforcing that acting out of anger is a way towards that I can feel better about myself or feel better about my life. So it's reinforcing that delusion that acting on anger is the way towards happiness. And, and the, the, um, the teachings say that in this particular case, acting on greed is a little less uh, uh, intense on the mind. Not that it's good by any means, but that, that the, the kind of the rebound effect of taking that includes the uh, the anger or the aversion has a stronger repercussion for our own system than stealing out of greed. Um, you know, maybe we can think about this in terms of um, um, in some of the gray areas, like somebody stealing a loaf of bread because they don't, have, you know, the whole miserable thing, you know, stealing a loaf of bread because they need to feed their family. Um, you know, there's some there's some greed there, but there's also a whole system at work that's preventing them from having what they need to live, and so you know the the um, you know the stealing there, the taking what's not given there. There's some rebound effect on that uh, on that mind of uh, you know, and and there can be consequences of that. But there's also um, the whole context. That's that's in play there, of a system of um, inequality that deprives beings of enough food. In a way that may be also seen as taking what's not given, you know, not not affording people the opportunity to have livelihood to purchase bread. So there's many, many uh, subtleties that we that we need to look at here, and um, and in that situation, you know, like like I think I talked about in the lying, uh, the time we talked about wise speech. Um, if in a moment, you know, somebody comes to me uh, and asks me, "Am I sheltering um, someone of the Jewish faith in in Nazi Germany?" You know, I hope I would have the courage to lie, you know, and 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 yet there are consequences of that, you know. There is a rebound effect of that, but the but in in my in my thinking of this, it's like the rebound effect of that versus the rebound effect of saying, "Oh yeah, here, you know, here's this person hiding." You know, the rebound effect of that is going to be greater, and so yeah, I'll take the karmic consequences. I'll take the rebound of that and know that there there is going to be some some possible um consequences of that so um you know, some subtleties or some kind of things that we might not think about in terms of taking what's not offered like um 
taking um, pens home from work or using the computer at work for private things, you know, things like that. A little bit of a subtlety there. Um, but again, you know, it, 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 I think the interest that we bring is, well, is there some greed here? Is there some delusion here? When we, we find, like, you know, I walked out of work many times with pencils and mostly it was kind of like almost habit. You know, I'm using this pencil, I put it in my purse. So it's more delusion than it is either greed or aversion. You know, it's not so much the greed or aversion, but it's just the, the forgetting that this belongs to somebody else. You know, and, and so, um, uh, you know, to, to recognize as I, as I come home and I've got a bag full of pens, it's like, okay, you know, maybe I need to take these back and, and try to be a little more conscious of the property of, of others. Um, in terms of the um, kind of the the way this is explored or expressed in the commentaries, the the suttas don't talk so much about the the gradations of differences, um, different situations or different scenarios, but the commentaries speak about that if you um, you know that the the again the rebound effect or the consequences of taking something from someone of high moral standing is more um, it's more of a rebound more of a kind of a, a of a reverberation in our system from taking something from somebody or a being with uh less virtue. Um, The size or the value of the object also weighs in. And so, you know, so this is not, this is not like, you know, taking something um, every time you might take something, it always has the same level of rebound. And so, you know, taking something that has a very high value has a higher rebound on us. And, you know, this, I think, also, it, it, it resonates with us. You know, if we, if we take a pen from work and forget that it belongs to somebody, there's a smaller rebound on our mind than there is if we're, you know, walking out with a computer. So the... Um, I think that these gradations that are spoken to in the commentaries kind of reflect, in some ways, um, what we understand as being certain things feeling more impactful on us, certain actions being more impactful on us than others. The other piece around um, all of these path factors of the ethical section, there's an understanding that with each refraining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, idle chatter, refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from creating harm through sexuality. That the refraining from, it's not just about refraining from in a way. I mean, we're talking about looking at the, looking, I talked about the, that the refraining from the action is kind of in the domain of letting go of the, of the unwholesome qualities of mind that motivate that. But there's also the understanding that simultaneous to that, if we connect to it, and for me it actually takes an active connection when I'm refraining from something, consciously refraining from something, in my, in my, um, before I really got a sense of this, it really felt like, okay, I'm going to put down that aversion to that spider and not kill it. So it, it felt in that domain of letting go or releasing the unwholesome. But the, um, the teachings point to that while we're doing that, part of the rebound of that is that it simultaneously begins to cultivate a beautiful quality of mind. And so the refraining from killing cultivates compassion. It begins to have that, the movement of compassion to be uh, felt. If we can open to it, you know, I actually, um, you know, 
I had I had this this experience at one point around ants in my kitchen um, that I was not killing them. I was trying to scoop them up and put them outside, and, and um, you know, doing this actually created a relationship between me and these ants. And at some point, watching and witnessing these ants. I felt more of a sense of these are living beings. They're just doing their thing. They're trying to find their food. And and there was a feeling of connection and compassion that came with that. I would not have felt that had I not been engaged in this action of refraining from killing. So the, the because that, that kind of created that relationship. So so the activity of refraining from doing something that I had habitually done began to build a relationship and then there was the possibility of that emotional response, the, the feeling of compassion. And so with uh, refraining from taking what's not given, the, um, the, the teachings talk about this bringing in qualities of contentment that we can begin to recognize that we can be content with what we have uh, honesty in terms of um, um, not doing something dishonest and also in terms of respect that we begin to recognize again it's the it's the connection of this person has their kind of their property and and we're respecting their personhood their personness and their, you know, we, we don't want somebody to take something from us that belongs to us. And so the, the, it, it's, again, it's connecting to that, that respect piece begins to connect to that relationship of not seeing a person as an object. And so sometimes we can act actively, sometimes it comes upon us like by surprise, like the, the feeling of compassion for those ants, that took me by surprise that day. Um, but sometimes we can also recognize or consciously bring that in, you know, that, that um, you know, not doing this, this action is an act of respect. And it doesn't have to be that we, are, that we are avoiding acting, you know, that it doesn't have to be we have the urge to act and avoid that action, that that would be the only time that we could feel that. You know, it's like a lot of the time we're engaged in ethical conduct. And we actually don't recognize it. We don't notice that we are not, a lot of the time, not taking what's not offered. We're not engaged in harm, harmful conduct. And, and part of the reason for that, some of it is, is habit, some of it is the way we've been trained and taught. But some, but some of it, if we actually let our minds kind of land on this, it's like, yeah, there's a sense of that connection between myself and this other person and these feelings of respect and care and compassion. Like, you know, a simple example around this the other day, I was, uh, I was uh, driving and, um, you know, seeing somebody cross in the crosswalk. You know, I'm not going to, like, put my foot on the accelerator and kill them. I'm not going to do that. But I noticed in that moment something about, and so I was, you know, in some ways we could say it wasn't even an issue to refrain from killing that person here. And yet what was happening was that I was recognizing this person walking across the, the, the crosswalk and the connection of myself with that being and the vulnerability of that person that if, like, you know, something happened to my car and it, like, you know, sped up without my doing anything. You know, the, we're hearing some of these things happen these days. Um, that that person is vulnerable, and there was a feeling of, of like poignancy and and the kind of the sense of the vulnerability and fragility of life there, the feeling of respect for that person, and the the sense of may you take care in your day. May you have a, an easeful day. So that connection was there. And so this, you know, so this kind of 
connection is possible or the kind of recognition of the cultivation of these wholesome qualities of respect, of compassion, of contentment, of, of honesty is possible through a lot of our day if we attune to that, if we actually turn to this is actually going on in our minds. So I think I will stop there and not get in so much to sexual misconduct today and just see, you know, we have, we have a, a little while if there's comments or questions or thoughts or reflections about this topic, yeah. No. There we go. Um, do the commentaries talk at all about a connection between refraining from taking what is not ours and the idea of generosity? Um, there's a, you know, I'm not sure if it's how it is in the commentaries so much, um, but there is a connection in a way that um, um, it's almost like seen as the opposite quality. You know the, the 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 craving or the movement of wanting to have something like that, that that the the more the flowering of I mean so the the um, not doing that is is um, not wouldn't be necessarily considered generosity, but it moves in that direction. So uh, you know I'm not sure if I can come up with a a, a place in the in the commentaries that that speak to that, but that is there's definitely that understanding of that connection. I think Bhikkhu Bodhi mentioned it, and he, if he mentioned it, you know, it's usually in the commentaries somewhere that how the 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 flowering of this quality of um, uh, refraining from taking what's not given leads us more to the the sense of offering of, of that, yeah. I just had one hit on that, which is, which I was thinking about earlier. If we, if we know that people can't take what is not freely given, then we can be mindful to give freely. That's true. Yeah, right? that's so beautiful. Like, oh, I can put them out of their misery here. I give to them. That's know, yeah. So that's beautiful. Yeah. I was just on 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 private property and cultural norms. I mean, two two things was that. So much of our morality and ethics can be delusional, yes, or created by social conformity or laws that are misguided. And I was reading a story about um, the Underground Railroad <clears throat> and Philadelphia, which was a free state. And there was a law, I guess, that said that if a Negro, it was called at the time, escaped or was able to get to Philadelphia, if they freely came forward and said, I want to be free, then the law was they could be freed. But they, the, the, the slave themselves, had to ask. And it was a very interesting, so here you have one country that was legal, that their property, so their it's, and then you have this other state where they're human beings, right? And they're not property, but the freely given of yourself. It was, a very, it was just a very interesting twist on that. I never yeah. thought about it. It was so humane. It was so beautiful. Like you, could, you couldn't go steal the slaves and free them by force is basically what that oh, was Oh, I see, yeah. You yeah. couldn't. But if they voluntarily... Yeah. Wanted to yeah. be free, then you can. It was a way of solving the property issue in a sense. Yeah. But uh-huh. it's so, so one beautiful. thing I'll point to here is the what you brought out is the you know, that the beginning of what you said was the the conventions of laws that um you know, we think of that as morality, but but that there's a distinction, there's a clear distinction in the in the commentaries, I'm pretty sure it's commentaries, not suttas, but just that the, um, there's two, two words from 
for for the difference. There's the natural morality of this kind of resonance of uh, empathetic sense. I mean, the whole um, owning human beings as property is immoral from that standpoint. You know, it's it is not ethical. It is harmful, and so that that you know doesn't matter what the law says. You know, so that that the um, that's that's this the the sila of the eightfold path, the ethics of the eightfold path, is what's called a natural morality, in resonance with this um, empathetic sense of what's harmful, what leads to harm, and what leads away from harm. And then there's another another term that's called prescribed morality which is based on laws um, conventions social conventions and um, the the natural morality is understood to be a higher morality that uh, some some conventional morality or prescribed morality can actually be counter to the counter to the uh, natural morality and so um, that's a place that you know we need to <laughs> we need to take care and and this and so this this brings up the 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 the, the possibility or the um, kind of like the the ethical imperative towards um, non cooperation with unethical laws and being willing to take the consequences of that. I mean, there are consequences. There are consequences of that. I mean, being put into jail or, or fined or whatever. But, but the the inner, uh, the, the this is where the um, the Buddha's teachings are more interested in. What's the inner quality of the mind? So, so. Um, yeah, I just wanted to to mention that because that's an important. I think it's a really important piece to highlight that the the eightfold path is not the ethics of the eightfold path is not about the the social conventions, and um, and it's interesting though that let's let's that's the way it's framed and the way it's talked about, and yet you know in the in the uh, refraining from sexual misconduct, I you know I agree in the in the way it's framed the refraining from the 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 wise speech and wise action the things that are said we should refrain from in those areas those are really about non-harming um the way it's framed in the the sexual misconduct piece is framed in the suttas it sounds way more like se- a convention it's 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 societal convention at the time that was defining what was harmful there was there were some pieces of it i mean like you know rape was not good <laughs> uh, that were clearly harmful but but just the way it was defined it was in first in the first place in the suttas the only way it was defined was in terms of what a man should avoid there was no mention of what women should avoid the commentaries filled that out a little bit <laughs> you know what women should avoid um but I think we, what we need to do there is come back to the teaching that he gave to his son on non-harming. It's like, is this action going to create harm? And there's a lot of, a lot of like nuance in that, especially in the realm of, of sexual misconduct, you know, in a relationship. What are the agreements between two people? And are they really entered into with, with both parties having an equal understanding of those agreements in terms of can we have relationships outside of this relationship? In the, in the, um, in the um, definition of refraining from harm through sexuality, refraining from sexual misconduct, you know, there was not a, an injunction against... Um, uh, sexual relations outside of your primary relationship, you know, courtesans were fine. You know, it's like you were you were instructed not to have sexual relationships with people who were under the protection of others or nuns, or you know. But but it wasn't that the contract of marriage means you shouldn't have sex outside of that 
So, so, so I think we, and, and my sense probably is there was a lot of harm created. <laughs> you know, human beings are human beings. And, you know, the, the pain of the, of the way that was structured, just because that was the convention at the time, doesn't mean harm wasn't being caused. So I feel like, you know, we need to kind of up-level that that particular teaching to really reflect on if we are engaging with our sexual energy, um, does it, you know, is it, is it in something that may be causing harm, you know, so, so that, that it really comes back to that reflecting on harm. Yeah. 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 And would you pass the mic back? I'm going to go back to um, the taking of um, you focused on physical objects. Yes. So what comes to mind is whether taking advantage of someone, which is a, to me, a more, I don't want to say more common taking if you know I'm not going to steal. Right. Versus, and I get the pencil or the, you know, we, we do take. Well, I think this we is a really it. good point. There's subtler forms of this. Um, and I think this is a, a way that we can deepen our understanding of these, of these precepts. Um, I believe that the technical definition I- involves objects. objects. Okay. But, um, you know, I think, again, you know, if we want to follow the what the Buddha talked about to his son, you know, taking advantage of somebody. Is that causing harm? Yes. But I was trying to think, is that wise speech or is it, or is it part of an action? And it kind well, of I felt think like, it's, it, it's it felt like all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it can be in there. And that's another, another piece too, to reflect on like the, the, um, uh, the, the sexual misconduct piece. It's like, does it involve a lie? You know, so, so the, again, just looking at the, the broader perspective of it. But at the same time, you know, the, the, this question of ethics, I think, is, is deeper than, in some ways, and the, than just these, these guidelines, you know, that, um, some teachers, Tanisaro Bhikkhu being one of them, points out that the precepts, these, these ethical guidelines are, um, are really, um, very specific in their definition and partly that supports us in being able to do them and um you know the the, the there's a lot of a lot of subtleties that that can come in um and so i think this this the the ethical precepts point us begin to point us towards creating this uh, empathetic resonance, and then we really need to land in the in the teaching that he gave to his son. It's like this action does it create harm? And that's a much subtler kind of ethics. You know, it's not just it's not just about well, okay, can I get away with this because it's not an object? You know, it, it we're not going to you know we're 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 not going to uh, if we're if we're taking advantage of somebody out of greed there's going to be a rebound effect because of that. And so it may not be technically, I mean, like I sometimes expand the definitions, like are we taking time from somebody that's not offered, you know, things, so there's other, other things like that, you know, we, we, we do that, like right now, it's 11.01, I'm taking the time that's not offered, so we should stop. <laughs> you know, so, so we can reflect on that, yeah. Thank you.